This is Sending Signals, a show about music and creativity. I'm your host, Matt Royal. show. Later I'll be speaking to actor, musician Brian Prothero. But first... A question for you creative types. How do you know when you're done? Not whether a song or a painting is finished, but when you're done working within a certain medium or a long-term project, particularly when you've been successful at it. Actress Greta Garbo walked away from her career in her mid-30s, never to return. Cartoonist Bill Watterson retired from creating the beloved Calvin and Hobbes comic strip at a similar age, feeling like he'd done all he could with a project and that a future of diminishing returns awaited. The band R.E.M. made a clear and stated decision to walk away from a band, a decision I respect them for and is probably the right one creatively. But as an outsider, I sometimes find it hard to imagine having the strength of mind to do that. My first guest, Fish, recently released what he claims is his final studio album, Weltschmerz, a German word meaning world of pain, if you're interested. It's an ambitious and epic work. After more than 30 years as a solo artist, he claims he's going to rip out his home studio, which you may have seen on Gardner's World recently, and convert it into a writing room where he'll focus on a new career as a novelist. It's a decision I find fascinating, and I wanted to dig into it, Fish loves to talk and he was so open and generous with his time. I had such a good time with him and I hope you enjoy it too. You'll hear some clips from a new album during our interview as well. In a town outside Edinburgh that was, you know, a, a, a mining community mixed with a farming community. And, you know, we were brought up to look after you know, each other. People, you know, there was there was a lot of a lot of high morals kicking around at the time, as far as I, I remember, you know. So, yes, I mean, that gives me hope, you know. But it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, you know, I mean, through the whole lockdown, I mean, you know, we've been lucky as a family to be, you know, we live in the country. We've got a garden, you know, we, we've got, you know, a kind of small oasis that's kind of, you know, tucked away in the, in the background. And, you know, we, we've managed to maintain our sanity through that. And because of the way that I deal with things and because of how I elected to deal with the music industry way back in the mid 90s, you know, I'm, I'm in a, a, a decent enough position. But I mean, uh, it's, um, I think, you know, I kind of summed it up in the, the, the lyric on, on the album, On Grace of God, you know, it was, uh, you know, very aware of kind of what's going on out there and the fact that I'm I'm lucky being where I am, you know. So on a, on a lighter note then, were you were you happy with your Gardener's World appearance? Yeah, it was fun, you know. I mean, you, I think 
you've got to understand where I'm at as a person, I think, to, to kind of to gauge where all these elements stand in my life. Or the, you know, you know, I elected out, uh, you know, in, in the, the late 80s, early 90s, you know, there was, there was conscious decisions made, you know. And, you know, I was never particularly comfortable with the exposure to your private life, you know, mm -hmm. that occurs when, you know, you particularly, I mean, when, when Kaylee broke, it brought in, it opened a door to a room that I didn't really want to be in, you know, and I, I found it intrusive. And, you know, despite my proclamations and Fish and Friday and despite the openness of my lyrics, you know, I'm still a relatively private person, huh. you know. And, you know, I mean, you know, I, I'm in a position at the moment with Weltschmerz that I know what kind of album that I've, I've got here. And I know that when I pull the cork out of that bottle and the genie escapes, you don't know what kind of genie you're, you're going to be dealing with. And my wife and I, you know, both made, you know, a decision months ago that no matter what happened with this album, that, you know, we were going to stay, keep it calm and keep it under control as much as we could, you know, because... Yeah, the bottom line is, you know, I don't have a rich lifestyle. We don't have a rich lifestyle. I mean, the, the element in our lives that, that, that commands most of the finances is the garden. You know, I drive, you know, a Skoda, which is just, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I don't have Ferraris. You know, I don't, we don't have yachts or, or villas anywhere. You know, this is our place. This is our home. You know, I don't have this house. I've never been somebody that's had a house and gone, oh, well, if we do this to it, we can make more money off it and then sell it and buy someone else. It's a home, right? Yeah. And um, and it's the same where, you know, people have said, well, why don't you sell on Amazon? Why don't you sell at retail? Because I don't want to, you know, because we can keep it under under control to some degree here. You know, the fact that we are selling it. And, you know, I mean, my wife is actually in front of me at the moment, you know, packing up the 70 orders that we had in the day, which, you know, the sooner we got them done, I'm out in the garden putting garlic in, you know. It's like, and that's the way that's the way I want to run it. You know, we I don't need millions. I don't I'm not I don't want a lot of money. I've, I've seen what money does to people and, and I feel uncomfortable when I've when I've got a lot of money. If I if I won a, a huge sum on a Euro million or a lottery win, then I'd, I'd probably just give it away or, or put it into projects that were like that would help people, you know, and, and things, you know. I mean, it seems quasi hippie, but you know, it's kind of that's where I'm at. I mean, I, I came through it, you know, in my life. I mean, I have been desperately broke. I mean, you know, at the end, of, you know, at the end of the nineties, I was nine hundred grand in debt, and I knew how that felt like, you know. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, I came, to, I fought my way through that. So I mean, I've got a certain respect, and I've also got uh, a fear of money as well, because as I said, I mean. You know, I know how it works both ways from both sides of the fence. It's a, it's a tool, isn't it? And like cultivating contentment is the best way of life you can you can get, really, because yeah, um, yeah, being happy with what you have and what you have is is you know from from what from an outside point of view, what you've got is lovely. You know, mm. so um, you know you've got a beautiful garden, you've got a lovely wife, and you've got more than you know you've got ample for what what you need so being contemporary I mean, the, health, the health things you know are really you know they take a present you know as i got older i mean again 2015 when i made the decision to retire you know i was suffering from a, a, a bad spinal problem and you know and i had a, a, a badly torn rotator cuff and you know and i was kicking about in a tour bus in 2015 you know getting bounced about in the middle of the night could hardly sleep 
And I was like, you know, I don't need to do this anymore. I don't want to do this. And, you know, and, and the last European tour I went out on, you know, when the kids were all going, let's go up the old town and, and you know, ramble in a couple of beers. It's like, well, do I really want to walk across cobbles for 30 minutes to go up to the old town that I've seen 20 times before to stagger all the way back and take extra ibuprofen in the morning? I'll stay in the, I'll stay in the hotel room and watch Netflix and drink wine. And then you realise that you've just spent two months of your life, you know, having a great two-hour period on a stage, you know, five days out of seven. But, you know, the rest of it, I, was, I wasn't here, you know, and I was away from people that I loved. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I did an interview with somebody oh, four months ago. They were, they were talking about a, a really well-known guitarist, an American guitarist. And he actually said in the interview, he said, it's strange that the older that he gets, the more he actually misses home. He gets more homesick as he gets older. Than, than he did, you know, when he, when he was in, you know, when he was kind of in his 30s or 40s or whatever, you know. And I said, you know, and this is the way I like it. And as I said, I mean, you know, people talked about, are you going to go into politics? No, it's not really kind of on the agenda because I, I like to commentate. I like to, I like to be able to stand back and maintain what, as honest a perspective on something as I possibly can, you know. I like to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly, you know. That was something different, but like, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what I don't get then is why why the plan to do a Velschmutz vigil tour and then a farewell tour? Why even do either of those tours? Or if you're going to do any, why not make the vigil Velschmutz tour your farewell tour? I don't want to make vigil Velschmutz my farewell tour because it's not it's not playing the some of the 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 problem is that when the cunning plan was developed. Right, right. You know, the this the Velschmelz tour should have been this year and the farewell tour should have been at the end of next year. Yeah. Right. And that was a nice plan. It was like, you know, let's go, you know, the Velschmelz album's out, we go out with the Velschmelz album, you know, we sell the Velschmelz album at the merchandise stall, we have the vigil remaster there to sell them and da da da. And you know, there was a there was an nest egg profile in there you know yeah this is the way it goes so i can get i can get rid of the vigil welshman's thing and then i can go out my farewell tour but because of covid the whole thing's been kiboshed and you know and i, I don't really want to go out on a tour next the, the replacement tour next year you know the february tour is gone now which you know i'm kind of glad about yeah. um and you know but next september i mean you know i'm, I'm, I'm a realist in the same way as like in 2015 it's like i'm never going to be playing stadiums i'm never going to be playing arenas you know, that's not going to happen. So there's no point in thinking about that. You know, I am going to be on a nightliner, trundling from one European city to another, you know, to to wake up to have a shower and a venue. That's what I'm going to be doing. That is my reality. It's not going to change. I'm not going to suddenly be in Genesis, right, where I've got an army of physios and a legion of helpers and I'm wrapped in cotton wool and I'm doing a gig every three days, you know, with everything at my very behest. You know what I mean? It's, that's not going to happen. So it's like okay, I accept that. I'm not. Gonna, I don't know better about it. It's just I accept it, you know. And that's why, you know, as I said, 2015, I went, you know, you know, that, this is kind of you know where I want to walk away. But I mean, I think the the physical demands have hit me a lot more in in the last three years. You know, it is. You know, I, I have had to have a stool on on, on the. On the, on the stage and to sit there during the guitar solos, etc., because my spine cannot stand in one area for long periods of time. And, you know, that's the way to do it. And it's all part of the decisions. You know, they're all decisions based on, on reality. And, and I'm quite happy with where I'm at. You know, it's like, you know. See, I think right now you are probably the biggest you've been for years. You know, I've, I've had, you know, I've had friends tell me I'm going to see fish this year recently. You know, that hasn't happened for a while, you know, mm -hmm. and it seems like, 
new album's selling really well. Prog shoved you on the, the cover. And when, like, your former band are now selling out the Albert Hall, I, I just think the, the landscape that you're in is so much better than it was 15 years ago. And I think, actually, you probably could do a few bigger shows yeah, but you know, I had that in Holland last year. You know, last year on the tour, when the Dutch promoter said, "Well, you know, rather than playing five venues, why don't you just play one big one?" And I went, "Well, why? You know, I don't want to do that. You know, I've got to get. I mean, I've got to get in a far bigger production. I'm never going to be comfortable because I'm only going to be using it for one or two nights." Yeah, and and I like the contact. I mean, you know, my favourite tour that I did, you know, out of all, of all of them, was the Fishheads Club tour. Right. So we met on that tour. I interviewed you in Southend for a local magazine. Uh, you, okay. Yeah, you played um, you played Riga in Southend. And um, yeah, I came to Soundcheck and we did an interview at the side stage thing. I remember that gig. <laughs> yeah. I remember that gig. It was great. You know, it's a little venue. And you like came into the audience and, and sang Vigil, which was really cool. That tour was great because, I mean, that's what I heard at the, at, you know, the end days of Marillion. It's like, I, mean, I remember playing and we're playing down in Rotterdam at the Ahoy. And, you know, you walk, you, you went into the venue and, you know, there was like the trucks were all parked backstage and you go up to do the sound check and it's a great big hall and you go, wow, right? It's, this is incredible. And you do the sound check and it's sounds bouncing everywhere. And then you came back and then you went on stage and you never saw anybody. Yeah. And you can, you can talk to people, you know. And um, you had super troopers in your face the entire night. You couldn't, you couldn't really see apart from the first 15 rows or when there was a lighting effect where you could just go woof and there was a massive crowd. But you couldn't talk to people, you know, you couldn't, there was no, there was no kind of rep RT going on, you know, if somebody at the front shouted out something, you answered something funny, the people at the back were only getting one side of the joke, yeah. you know, it just became a machine. And there, there was, I, I just felt that wasn't where I was at. And, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, when I left the band, you know, there was still, you know, I think in the early 90s, there was still that desire, you know, I want it to be big and stuff. But I mean, you know, again, as I said, you know, you, you start to accept where you're at and you also realise what you want from life, you know. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, the Fishheads Club tour, to go out and then just to name a set list on the night, you know, you had five or six songs that, yeah, you were going to play. And then people would, you know, I want to hear this. Da, da, and then you could talk for 15 minutes. You didn't have somebody like moaning behind you going like, you know, we'll just shut up now, you know? And you could just have a laugh. And that's why, that's why you know, the, the, my, my farewell tour, you know, I have an idea what I want to do, you know, and it isn't the Vigil Welshman's tour. I mean, the, the farewell tour, what I would like to do is to take an approach similar to Fishheads Club, although bigger, obviously, because they like the, the production. But, I mean, to go out and to play my favourite cities or favourite towns, favourite venues... And do two nights in every venue and do two different set lists. Stay in a place for two days so you can go up to the old town and have a meal with your mates. So you're good friends for that town, journalists that you know or whatever, or fans that are, that are, are friends. <clears throat> and spend two, two nights and have fun. And I want my wife to be with me so she can come out and, and see all the places and we can be relaxed and chilled. Two nights on, one night off or two nights off and just have, enjoy, just enjoy that whole thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, in, in three years' time, if if I'm missing my fix uh, of being on a stage, then I can click my fingers and put together a two-weeks Fishheads Club tour and play venues that are like, don't require massive publicity in Facebook campaigns. You can just go out and have a laugh, you know, and just enjoy singing and enjoy the catharsis of being on a stage, enjoy the communion, enjoy the, the laughter and, and the energies and things. You can do that without having, having to be an absolute trial, you know? 
And some people just, they don't get me. I mean, you know, I walked out of Marillion in 87, right? You know, just before we were about to sign a million pound publishing deal, and before we had, and we had a three-week tour that was sold out, sitting on the cards for the Zimmer. And I went, I don't want to do this, right? I have to do things for myself, you know, and I, I don't, that's why I don't like the way that the music business now has become so intertwined with the entertainment industry, although music is always entertainment, I understand that, but that side of the entertainment industry, that, that you know, the middle page entertainment showbiz pages of the sun and stuff like that, I don't subscribe to that, that's not where I'm at, that's not why I write, that's not why I perform, that's not what I do, you know. I'm interested in like the transition from being in a band to then presenting yourself as a solo artist because you're not you're not a musician, you know. Nope. So, what did you think fans would be buying into? Like, what's the ratio of you as like a singer to a lyricist to a persona? You know, how how do you how how did you see yourself in terms of like positioning yourself as a solo artist? What did you think fans would be buying into? What? Back in 89? Yeah. I mean, and has it changed? It's changed completely. I mean, but my, my perception of the industry has changed. It changed dramatically when I went into the argument with EMI after the Vigil album. You know, there was a, there was a new, I definitely gained a, a diff, completely different perspective on the music business after EMI into Polydor and, and things. And then there was there was a shock to the ego, you know, and I, I think, you know, I had to kind of pull my ego in, especially in the mid-90s to late-90s. You know, I mean, it was there was survival back then, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, and I did become persona non grata after the Polydor deal, you know, after the Polydor deal, after I was dropped the Polydor. I mean, you know, it was like, you know, Maverick was not mentioned in a, in a, in a phrase that was particularly complimentary, you know. And I had opinions, and you know, and I voiced them, and upset a lot of people at the time. And, and but you know, the integrity, my integrity, is important to me. You know, it's like, and that I was given to by my father, and that's how I was raised. This and it, I just changed. I mean, the thing I like being a, as a moving into becoming a solo artist, I didn't have to deal with a committee. You know, I wasn't writing with committees. I wasn't having to deal with my life having to get the okay by a committee and things. So there was. There was a, a, an overwhelming whiff, an exhilarating whiff of freedom that came with it all, you know. But at the same time, there was a lot more self-responsibility. And, you know, and, and I grew up, I mean, you know, the person that's here talking to you is a completely different person to the, the one that moved here in, in 1989 and started writing Vigil, completely different. You know, I've realised a lot of things. I've realised my limitations. I've realised... Uh, you know, I'm not as smart as, you know, I used to think I was, you know, I mean, that's just maturity. It's just grown up, you know, but I don't care now. It's, you know, I mean, we we do what we do. I mean, if we lost everything and lost the house, I could still find a way to make a living and do something, you know. It's weird because you go back to Vigil now and it does feel like an album that's designed to potentially make you a star. You know, it feels like it feels really well-rounded and it's got... It's got slightly, you know, the title track is kind of a bit proggy with sections and it's got it's got some rock songs and it's got orchestrations and you've got a gentleman's excuse me, which is a beautiful ballad, and you've got the company's kind of a pop song and it's got a bit of Scottish heritage thrown in yeah. and all this kind of stuff. It feels a really well rounded record that's designed to like capitalise on I guess the momentum from Marillion and to like position you as like 
a star, you know. There was no, there was not a cynical thought going on within that at all. Okay. You know, I mean, that was just where I was at. Yeah. And I think you know, working with Mickey Simmons was a part of that whole freedom. You know, I was still working with one guy that, that was listening to what I was saying, and and I could basically, and he had the musical expertise and the musical knowledge, and he had the ability to to, to basically carry my words into the area that I wanted them to be to go. And that's what Vision was just what I wanted to do. It wasn't, there wasn't any kind of um, big commercial lean on, you know, where the album should go. Okay. It was like, you know, I want to do it. This is, this is where I'm at. I've just come in. I was in a big band called Marillion, you know, and I've left it, you know, after the best album that I thought we put together under a lot of dubious circumstances. But it was like, you know, when I went with Vigil, I just wanted to make the best album that I could make. You know, I wasn't sitting there going, I'm going to make millions. You know, that wasn't kind of any any which way forefront of um, um, my, my drive, you know. So the record company weren't sort of influencing any kind of creative decisions on that record? They weren't no. giving you feedback? There was the, you know, I think with the producer, with John Kelly, you know, the, we were trying to find a producer, but I mean, at the end of the day, I still had, I, I still had full say on it, yeah. you know. Because I mean, you and I never knew what to do with Merlion. They never understood Merlion ever, you know. It was like, you know, when we signed with them, it was like, you know, they, they had no idea how they were going to promote us. And because we already had the fan base, you know, we created Merlion. But what, what EMI gave us was the machine to get the, the product out. You know, and that's why Kaylee was such a huge hit because you're a massive machine. I think I've written songs that are, you know, as good as, you know, that are up there with, with Kaylee. I mean, songs like Just Good Friends and, and things like that. And, you know, there's other songs, I mean, even, even on this, this present album, you know, got this party's over and, and Gardner Remembrance. I think if I'd been with EMI, they'd be massive hits. But, you know, they're not, and they're not getting played, but I don't care, right? And especially now I don't care, because it's like even when I got the album, I went, that's it, it's over, I've done it. I've done what I said to do, which was to make what I thought was the best album that I've ever made in my life, and that's where I say goodbye, you know? In the same way as I left Marillion, and it's like, that's the best album I thought, time to say goodbye. I want to leave on a high benchmark. I don't want to be, you know, the last guy leaving the ship that's foundering on the reef, you know what I mean? And it's, um, you know, that's what I do. He tries to recognize the source and place the name A face so familiar, the smile soft and warm The memory evades him, his mind wanders on It's surprising now, if you go back to the Clutching at Straws bonus disc, you've got those um, the demos for the next album, which has got a lot of vigil lyrics set to what would become Season's End. You got quite yeah. a way, actually, into the next album, didn't you? It's very odd to hear it now. No, it was way off. There was no songs then. I mean, I mean, that was the problem. We were writing the committee, and it was like we were... You know, I was I was putting lyrics like Big Wedge together, I was, and the, but people were going like, That's, it's anti-American, and the, you know, you can't write that because, you know, we're trying to break the American market. And they didn't like internal Excel because it was it was too Scotch nationalist and you know and state of mind was was too political and you know I went in and sang vigil, you know I sang the entire opening you know code as a vigil to the band when we were writing in the gar- garage in Aylesbury and it was like nah I don't like that and I went you know what I do you know and you know and that was it so like, I can't write like this you know and that was why you know I moved to Mickey Simmons and Mickey believed in me and you know and he was he he wanted to work with me. 
And you know, that was just the way it does. I mean, if you look on vigil from from clutching, you know, it's an obvious move. We started writing songs on, on clutching and straws, sugar mice, incommunicado, warm wet circles. If we'd actually applied ourselves a bit more, you know, it could have been a great song. But we merlinized it, you know. And you know, but when I went into vigil, you know, the company, family business, you know, big wedge, etc. You know, there were songs. They were they were properly formatted songs and you know, but, but that was how I was brought up, you know, when I listened to Genesis and Yes and Floyd and stuff. But I was also listening to Elton John and, and you know, loving Bernie Taupin. And I was, you know, I was a fan of Paul McCartney during, you know, the early part of Paul McCartney's career. You know, I was into The Who. I love Pete Townsend's lyrics. You know, I mean, there was all that. I mean, I was far rockier than than the other guys in Marillion. I mean, Incommunicado was, the, the band hated Incommunicado. And it was like, you know, and it was when Chris Kimsey and the A&R guy used to tell the Clark, you know, that's the single. And the bands are looking at each other going, what? And it was like, I'm going, yes, you know. And it was like, bam, I think Communicado was the who. And it's, you know, and that was part of when I went solo, I could do that. And I didn't have to ask other people, you know, can we do this? And, and have to like filter stuff through, you know. I'm, I mean, all you have to do is look what the guys do now and what I do. And it's completely different, you know. And, you know, but it's what I do. It's, you know, this is what I do, you know. interesting the sort of the argument between what is poetry and what is song lyrics and I feel that a lot of your writing whereas your poetry you have to build the whole world on the page you know you've got no sort of emotional world building from from a music but I feel like a lot of your writing kind of does stand alone on the page especially on the new album you know and I wonder do you see do you see a huge difference it, it kind of it kind of seem it kind of makes sense to me that you want to focus on writing in future because it feels like that's really where your heart is at you know yeah i mean it's you know my writing changed you know i mean i think scripted for gazi i didn't have any confidence i didn't you know i, I didn't have the confidence to really express myself openly but the time i got misplaced you know i was in a position where i did have that confidence and i had a bit more knowledge about you know construction and things and and you know, and I learned to edit, and I think you know, editing, you know, is, is one of the most difficult things, you know, as a as a writer, you know, to actually come to terms with, to self-edit and go, you know, what I have written, this can be better, you know, I don't have to have these hundred words here when I can have twenty, you know, that to say what the hundred words do, you know, and um, I don't look on what I do, I don't look on it as poetry. There's a lot of stuff. I mean, Little Man, what now was written before before it was attached to music. It was all written on its own. That was three days or whatever, or, or, or just, you know, sitting hunched over a table in the living room, putting feelings down and, and you know, there was, you know, and I love doing that and, and I get huge satisfaction out of putting that together to, to you know, write in this kind of <laughs> long form haiku. You know, it's like, because that's what you're doing. I mean, you're picking words out and then you're applying words into rhythms and does that fit that that melodic phrase? There's too many words there. How can I condense that and get that across, you know? And, I, you know, and I learned how to do that, you know, over the years. It took a lot of learning. And Veltschmerz, I think, you know, 
I reached a bit of a peak of it. You know, I mean, Rosie Damascus was an absolute, it was a, a, a massive challenge. You know, yeah. this is what I'm going to do. And it, it's ambitious. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, you know, and I was really proud when I got that together. But it was the research and everything that I loved. It was like, it, you know, it's not just coming up with bringing words into your head. It's like going out and finding out about things and, and immersing yourself in, 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 in kind of the moments of other people's lives and things like that and, and, and bringing that together and translating all that and putting, and, and putting it in a concise form and then having to, like, as I said, you know, find a melody to hang it on, to find, you know, to, to, to bring it into the, the the phrase, to bring it into the, the, the rhythms, to bring it into those constrictions. And again, that's the argument about why I want to leave it, because it's like, you know, I want to kind of spread my wings a little bit and, you know, I've flown about this cage for a long time and I want to go out the door now. I'm, I'm curious as to, with not being a musician, how does, you know, how does an album like The Ultimates get made when you're not a musician? So you're bringing in the words and have you already got a melody in mind? Are you directing musicians with a sort of feeling you want? Are you asking them to try stuff and then you're giving feedback on it? Or how does, how does an album like that get made? All of the above. Yeah. It's the hands in all different ways. I mean, you know what, Steve, Steve and I, Steve Anson and I have been working together since since 2006 now. And uh, first album, 13 Star, was was built during very difficult circumstances. I mean, you know, we were in the middle of writing that album when the relationship at the time absolutely exploded, right? And it was right in the middle of the writing. So, you know, I suddenly had to, to, had to take a step back and... I had to reevaluate where I was coming from on this album. And then Steve was doing a lot of work on his own here. My head was all over the place. It was splattered in a train wreck. And, you know, and I was going out to the greenhouse and, you know, I was picking up bits of music of Steve and taking it out there. And I knew kind of where I was. And it, it kind of came together in a fragmented way. By the time we moved into Feast of Consequences, our egos had, had fallen into place. I mean, there, there was a lot of kind of... There was a lot of jostling and, and there was a lot of prickly stuff went on during the 13 star writing, you know, because I would, I would come in and, you know, and, and, and it's, it's difficult. Um, <laughs> uh, there's some things that are, that, are, that are difficult to explain because it, I've got to comment on Steve in certain ways. I don't like commenting on Steve, you know, yeah. because it's Steve's personality and our personalities were such that, I mean, Steve gets very intense. I mean, you know, during 13 star, you know, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd be, you know, a couple of bottles of wine, sales to the wind, I'm away to bed. Steve would be staying up till four o'clock in the morning, keeping on adding things, adding things, adding things, adding things. And I'd come in in the morning and go, what is this? You know, get, get rid of this, get rid of that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we had a lot, we, we, we learned a lot about songwriting together. You know, telling Steve, like, okay, yeah, that's great, right? But we don't have to have it there for 20 bars. Why don't we just cut it down to, to eight bars or 12 bars? And you go in there, you have a taste, it's beautiful, you taste it and then you move on. And it's you know, you don't have to sit there and, and and go, this is great and this is in your face all the time. And 13 Star was a big learning kind of curve for both of us, you know. When when I hit Feast, it was like I was doing a lot of research and then Foss Patterson was involved. There's always other writers that come in with Steve and I, like Forrest Patterson, Robin Bolt, because you know, Steve and I can sometimes get too glued into the same spot and we need something else just to break us out of there or you know, whatever. I mean, it was um, for Weltschmerz, you know, Steve had, had amassed a load of ideas, rhythms and grooves and, and bits and pieces, uh, riffs and things like that. 
And then I'd be writing lyrics, and then I come through, and then we will sit in the control room, and I go, yeah, okay, that's it. I like that. That interests me musically. So let's, and that fits in with that feel that I've got for this storyline. And I tell Steve the stories, and I go, this is what this is about. This is the dynamics I want to hit. This is kind of like this is where the characters move in. You know, it's like making a film. You know, and you know, like on Rose of Damascus, like you know, well, we need to go into we had the war section, the debris section, you know, and the things. All right, okay, we need the war section, and you know, the war section was one of the most difficult ones to get because most of it was music. And but I said to him, I said, I want to use spoken word in it. I want to use the power of the spoken word. I want to use the, the deep gravitas voice here, right? So we we molded it, and Steve found you know the chaos, and then I kind of fell into that chaos, and then brought the chaos under control, and then you know I mean that, that's how we move it, you know. But there's a lot of contact, a lot of communication between the two of us, you know. And he respects what I do, and you know he knows that I'm not trying to put something over on them. You know he knows that what I'm trying to do is for the best of the song. You know it's not an argument of egos, and that's where we fell over the last two albums. And it's a, it's a great songwriting team, but I think you know well you know what we did together in Velschmerz. I mean you know I mean it, Steve did a lot of engineering, and that's why he's got a co-production credit because a lot of the skeletons were in place, you know before Callum Malcolm came on board. Although Callum was very aware, or like you know where the skeletal process was, it was like when Callum comes in, you know the songs are kind of there, and yeah he'll dissect bits, but he, but he brings ad he brings the ad in, but Callum's also a great translator for me. Because Callum also knows when it's too much, and Steve listens. When Callum goes, I think we can take that bit out, and we can. We, we don't need this instrument here, and we, you know, that's maybe you know, and it's it's through that teamwork between the three of us that made Velschmerz, you know. But it's a very collaborative process. But things happen in lots of different ways. Velschmerz, the title track, was Steve and I jamming at two o'clock in the morning in the, in the control room, you know, and it was like Velschmerz, you know, this is the chorus, you know, this is the chorus, and like. And it just it falls together. We just feel it, you know. Do you worry about getting um, misunderstood as well? Because I mean, it seems to be even going back to something like Market Square Heroes, I feel was probably taken how not how it was intended. You know, it's probably this like I take it as this story of this, you know, sort of fake leader almost. But then it, it felt like almost the band became. <laughs> The Market Square Heroes, and almost like your, you almost became that that character in the fans' eyes, which I, yeah. which I presume was not what you intended. I have a very intense memory of playing a gig in Köln, in Germany, and uh, it'd be nineteen. It was my first. It was about nineteen eighty four, and I remember playing this this crowd that were fanatical, and uh, I inadvertently raised my right hand, and a salute during the chorus and it was reciprocated by the crowd and it freaked me out. You know, it absolutely, it was like, it was like the Roger Waters wall moment. You know what I mean? It was kind of like that. It was kind of like, you know, or in my eyes, it was about the danger of following somebody. And it was about a guy called Brick. He was a real person in Aylesbury. He was a, a great commentator. He was a very, um, he was a great character. And people looked up to him, but he didn't really have that much to say, you know. But people, but, but when he said things, people listened to him. And you know, when there were the riots against the the Nazis that were coming up from Luton up, up to Aylesbury in, in, in 1981, you know, it was like you know he was standing at you know at the front of the pub steps, you know, going like you know we're going to get together and we're going to take them on and blah 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 and stuff. 
And it was about that, and it was about the danger of being led by somebody, you know, and, and just blindly f following people, you know. So it was like, you know, so when on that night in Colne, when it was like there were people blindly following me, I'm going, I've just turned into brick, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm very aware that, 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 you know, people can lean on songs and, and, and push them into, you know, different ways. I mean, you know, Big Wedge was always seen as being, you know, an anti-American song. It wasn't. It was a song that was anti-capitalist. It was a song that was anti-corporate. And it was it was about greed. That was a big wedge because that was what you know our Australian merchandisers like. Yeah, got a wedge, got a wedge, mate, got a wedge. How much wedge you get tonight, mate? Wedge. And that was before you know Harry Enfield brought in, right? And uh, and it was a big wedge. And it was and that was and it was the money. It was about kind of what had happened to the band and the the bands. I think the 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 band will be more influenced by the finances than they were through other things but that's my opinion you know yeah you know i'm aware i'm very aware of the the, the the danger of words and you know and i have been i'm very meticulous about i think you know like for example facebook and stuff now social media i mean i'm very guarded you know and you know before you know i i i, I always check everything three times before i post it to make sure because i mean i have been you know misquoted and i have i mean and all the interviews that I've done through the years, I mean, I've been horrendously misquoted in some areas. And um, so, yeah, I'm very aware of the power of words. Yeah, words have power, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's always there for you. He could never live without her. He could never walk away. He can only hope for healing and hope for better days. The broken china, repair the broken frame, count the days and blessings till she's home again. Um, can I ask about um, walking on eggshells? Yeah, uh, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells asking about the song, you know. But yeah, it, so it's it's clearly about domestic abuse. Am I right in assuming it's not about domestic abuse? Is it not? No, okay, it's about a couple dealing that are both bipolar, right. They're both bipolar. And it's about personality disorder. Okay. I, I felt that it was about someone at threat from their partner. Yeah, but it's... it's I, I don't want to go into too much of it because I open up a box that I don't want people to look into. I mean, one of the things... I was dealing with, I was dealing with situa situations where people that are close to me. And there was a lot of questions. It was like, why... Is this behaviour recurrent? And and I wanted to write a song about dealing, being in a relationship with somebody who's bipolar or who has a, a borderline personality disorder. Yeah. And I'd been reading books about it, and, and one of the books I read was called Stop Walking on Eggshells, and it was about specifically dealing with personality disorders and about how, you know, and it was like trigger points. And it was all about how, you know, you get scared to mention maybe another person or you get scared to mention something because you know that that reaction is going to be explosive. And when the explosion occurs, you wander across. But in a space of 40 hours, that other person could completely forget about what happened, what happened about that trigger point. And it's, it's, they're oblivious to it, you know? And then the whole thing falls back into the pattern again. And it's, it's all about, I mean, walk on eggshells is, is, is about a relationship where you have two people that are like, you know, 
you know, well, it's are both people, you know, do both people have, have, have are, are both kind of, are they both protagonists that have, you know, personality disorders or whatever, you know? But it's about that love that exists and, you know, and being in love with somebody that is, that has uh, personality issues or disorder issues or bipolar is testing, right? Because you really genuinely love that person. And you cannot understand the malevolence that can be directed at you, right? And then forgotten about forty hours later, you know. And it's 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 a, a, an enormous challenge. And I wanted to write about that. And I, I constructed this kind of um, the set that you know where you know I, I, I took elements out of the things that happened in my life at different points, and I, I invested them in the in within the lyric, you know. But that's what it's about. It's about the, the trigger point it's about that you know it's like bam you're aware and 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 then the book is like it says you've got to stop walking on eggshells you know because that's what you feel like you're doing around these people all the time is that you're walking on eggshells you're not really being you right because you're always allowing for the fact that there is an explosion somewhere very close down the road right you're always aware that you, you're kind of, you're walking on eggshells around this person all the time and it's a very very difficult situation to be in yeah um, I should let you go in a minute, but I've got a couple of questions. I'm, I'm cool. I'm, I'm absolutely sure? cool. Yeah, yeah. I've got a couple of questions that people have sent me. So this is from um, Bill Peel, who's my high school English teacher and a total dude. And um, he, he mentioned that, um, you know, you've meant a lot to him over the past 40 years. But he said, now you're retiring from the music business. What's your first novel going to be about? <sighs> Don't know. You've got nothing in mind? Oh, yeah. Oh, you have? But you. Yeah, I mean, I mean... <sighs> The, the problem is, it's like when I'm on the road, I don't write. I mean, you know, I, 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 can, I can do notes and things, but I mean, you know, and, and I've gone out and, I've, you know, I've been on the road and, I've, you know, I've, I've had, you know, the, the, the little book, you know, that I, I take down, you know, I might see something, you, do, you might write half a page on something and sometimes it's never used, sometimes it comes back years later, right? And, um, you know, there's many a time that I've sat in, in the back of a tour bus lounge at four o'clock in the morning, you know, watching the lights of some town go by me and, you know, and I'm thinking about plot lines and I'm thinking about this. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot, I've got a lot of ideas and I, I'm lucky. I've got a, a good memory. I've, I've got a very good memory and I can tap into a lot of things. And I think, you know, I, photography helped me a lot and that I can go on to my galleries or libraries, or whatever, and I can, I can pick a photograph out and I can remember Exactly what happened around that photograph and the feelings that were around at that time. And, and I can see beyond the photograph. And, you know, that's kind of what I've amassed over these years. And there's there's a couple of ideas that I've got. I mean, obviously, there's an autobiography. I started reading them a lot more in, in recent years just to go like, find out what not to do. Right? And I've kind of realised that, you know, and I think by doing the Fish and Friday thing as well, that... You know, I think a memoir is more akin to, I mean, like David Niven's kind of, um, David Niven's memoirs I love because he jumped about. It wasn't just, I became an actor and I did this and blah, blah, blah. It's all linear. I, I can't do that. You know, I do that and I jump about in conversations with subjects and like, you know, it's like the way Billy Conley does does comedy. You know, he starts off in one thing, goes somewhere else and comes back to it again, you know. And, and, but that journey is all really important. And that's kind of where I see a, a, a memoir going, you know. As far as creative writing goes, I've got about three or four ideas. There's one 
this 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 been in my mind for a while. But I mean, then again, it's like I was watching um, the Black Lives Matter thing. I became interested in for a number of reasons, and I was what I, I went. You know, I, I don't really know much about this. You know, I don't really know much about American civil rights. You know, I've read about bits and pieces, but I don't. But where did it? Where did this all begin? Right? Yeah. And then there was the statues thing, and it was. I watched this really interesting. And this is where it works for me. Right? I was watching a thing on CNN. It was an interview with a historian, uh, an on-site historian at Gettysburg. And he was on about the statues, and they were on about, you know, should the statues be torn down? And he went, no, they shouldn't be. And he said, you know, and he was talking about the history of the statues. And he said a lot of the statues were put up in the 19, 1960s and 1950s, 60s by people from down south. They were making statements against the, the, the civil rights movement by putting up these statues of generals that were all, you know. And I went, That's, I never knew that. And then it was like the American Civil War, blah, blah, blah. And then I started to study it. And then what I did was I watched about three Hollywood movies to get that perspective. Then I went from that into watching a lot of documentaries. And there was ideas came up from that. And one specific idea that I'm not even going to tell you about, right? That I mean, I was I, I had a, a film director friend came down and we were talking about it. And I said, I've got this idea. And he went, wow. Right. And this ain't a movie, it's a series. Right. And it's a really interesting series that, that you know, for to be written by a Scotsman would is is uh, it's a massive, massive challenge. And I've started to read and, I, and I'm I'm really enjoying the research on it. And I'm I'm discovering things that I never knew about before that now make perfect sense. And and that's what I love. I mean, I've always been interested in history. I mean, history was my big thing at school. That's what I want. I wanted to be an archaeologist. I wanted to go into military history. I nearly joined the army to become a military historian. Yeah, it's always been a program running in the back of my head. And when I did Feast of Consequences in Royal Highwood, I absolutely loved going into research. You know, I mean, it, it became ridiculous. It became absolutely ridiculous. I mean, we finished the five songs of the Highwood. And then I went, you know what? I was in Sarajevo when I was in Bosnia in 96. I stood on that bridge and I went, you know, that whole thing about, you know, the assassination and uh, blah, blah, blah. And then I started to research it. Then I was finding out what the weather was like in the day and the car and how the car drove and what happened. And, blah, blah, blah. and I, I got into it and I spent three days, you know, researching, reading up all these different, you know, examples of what happened on the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. And it was like, and the little voice went off in the back of my head going, stop now. <laughs> but I loved it, you know, and I loved getting into that and finding out things. And it's, it's very much with this thing with the American Civil War, this angle that I'm looking at the moment. I spent about 200 quid in books in the, in the last two months. They're all lying through on, on the, the table, waiting on me to get through this section we're in at the moment. And once I get into that, but it's, it's, that excites me. You know, and when I was talking to my film director friend and we were talking about it, we were sitting outside in the, in the garden for about an hour and I was getting very animated and very enthusiastic and he recognised it and it's like, let's find a way to see if we can make this work. And that excites me, you know, I've done music, you know, let's, I need another challenge, I need to, to go into some another area, you know, it's, yeah. um, it's important that we do that, you know, and I, I just, I mean, music industry has changed, I mean, people don't write albums anymore, they write tracks. I'm an album writer, you know. It's like being a novelist and being asked to write news articles for the rest of your life, you know. It's like, you know, I can't do that. You know, that's not where I'm at. 
And again, in 1982, the album was promoted by the tour. Now the tour is promoted by the album. It's, it's, it's bizarro world, Superman style. And it's, you know, and I don't want to be on the road. So it's like, okay, but I've got something else that really excites me. And I, I, I love, ever since I was a kid, I loved books and I loved those books that were sitting on my shelf and I used to take immense pleasure arranging them and, and, and you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs and Biggles books and I, I love it. It's so weird perspectives, isn't it? Because um, I work as a cleaner. I make albums which, you know, hardly anyone, <laughs> hardly anyone hears. And so it's the concept of having been able to make music and having an audience for it and deciding to like walk away from that is really hard to, to comprehend. But I haven't been making music professionally for 40 years. And so it. It, it's really hard to sort of... Um, you know, I, I can see that from a sort of credibility perspective, walking away when you're like, you know, still making good work is a really, it's a really credible thing to do. It's sort of brave and it's like, you know, REM did it and it's a cool move. But personally, it's kind of, it's hard to, it's hard to relate to unless you've lived your life, I guess. Yeah, you know? the fans are finding it really, this fans finding it really difficult to deal with. But I remember, you know, after Clutching Straws, when I left the band, I mean, the, the wailing and gnashing of teeth that occurred, you know, when I walked out of my room, it was like, you can't do this. And I remember when Gabriel left Genesis, you know, and I was the same as a teenager going like, you know, what's going to happen now? You know, my what, you know, the, the, the sky is falling in. It's not. It's just, you know, I'm just, you know. So people don't understand, you know, they've got to understand where I'm at as well. And, you know, my integrity is important to me and my legacy is kind of important to me. You know, I'm like, you got to look at it in perspective as well. I mean, this is Velchmouts. This is 2020. The last album was 2012, right? The one before that was 2007, right? You know, I've never subscribed to this bit where where you just, you know, there you are. There's, there's the obligatory piece of plastic that comes out, you know, buy, please, give me money. I've never done it like that. And the same way as you just said to me, you know, you make an album, but you've not got an audience, but, you know, but you get great satisfaction out of doing it. Yeah. And that's what I get from the album. When I finished the album, when Callum Malcolm sent me through the final mixes in the correct order that I'd spent three days working out, and he sent me through those finished discs, right? And my wife and I had the first bottle of wine we'd had for five months, and we sat there, right? And we went, that's it. It's done, you know? And there was a great sense of satisfaction going and I love listening to Velchmills. It sounds really weird. But I actually, you know, if, if you know my wife plays the, the album, you know, because she loves it, right? Yeah. And you know, and it's it's kinda of, and I like it and it, I'm happy I've done it. But you know, as soon as the album was done, it was like I mean even Steve Vance said he said that's it. He said like I said, no, I said, it's like Lord of the Rings now, right? I said because my little company, you know, I'm kinda of like, you know, I've, I've now I've got the ring and now I'm kinda of like you know, we've done that mountain and we've come through the nasty forest and we're here at the side of the river. And this is where I say goodbye to you because I'm now moving into the next area. And the next area is the selling and the promotion of it, which is an area that I'm, you know, I don't mind doing this. It's great to have a conversation with somebody. And I love interviews where you're made to think, you know, this is the first interview at 11 o'clock in the morning. Something goes, do you believe in God? You know? <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's just like, you know, I've got the next mountain. I'm over the next mountain and I'm heading towards kind of in the woods Mordor. <laughs> and you can read it that how you want. You Are know? you not worried, though, that you're going to rip out your studio and then after 
all these decades of thinking about creating music and you know, it's always going to be whirring in your head you know like ideas that you're going to start developing another album in your head are you not worried that that's going to happen no i'm i'm kind of i mean that you know there'll always be there'll all be tunes coming through there will always be bits where you know i'm, I'm going to write something good that make a great lyric for a song i mean I've, I've been approached by a band already i mean i've had a band approach me and said you know will you write the lyrics for an album a big italian band and it's uh, and it was like, no, I don't want to do it. I, I really don't want to do it. Yeah. And you know, and I'm sitting. I mean, this is the control room that, that, that I'm sitting in now. And yeah, and, and next summer, this entire room will be taken all the way back to brick, right? Right back to brick. The the, the ceilings are going to be opened up, all exposed, right? And I'm going to sit in here for a month maybe, and I'm going to work out what I'm going to do, right? And you know, what I want to do is, you know, I want to have big boards up in the wall that I can write characters' names up and I can, like, I've got cork mats that I can put, this is the idea, this is where this is going and I can put bits of thread up. That excites me, man, right? <laughs> so, you know, and then I've got a room that's a writing room that I can come into and I can sit with people and, I, you know, I, I want to work with other scriptwriters, you know, with this idea that I've got for a series. I cannot write this on my own. I'm going to have to work with other people. And that excites me because we're going to be putting characters together and putting stories together and, you know, I mean, it might fall flat on its face. I don't know, but I don't care because, in you know, the same way as you make your albums, it's like when I do it, I'm, as long as I'm happy with it, right? As long as I'm happy with it, then I don't really care. I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't go on to. I mean, back in the nineteen eighties, you know, I'd be, I'd be hunting down reviews and getting irate when somebody, you know, slagged off an album, or whatever. I don't even go there. Right, because I don't. My ego's not that it needs to be kind of like stroked, you know. It's like I know what I've done, right? And I don't need people to say, "Yeah, you've done that," or and I don't need to hear people saying like the music's crap and blah blah blah. It's like I don't care. I've done it. This is me. The one thing I realized a long time ago, and the one thing you realize is a, a, a pro musician. It's like you know, ninety percent of the planet just does not get where you are. You know, they never will. And there's no point in trying to convince them. And, you know, you've, and you've got to just kind of be confident in yourself and go, well, yeah, this is what I do. You know, if I can, you know, when the book comes out, if it sells enough to, to keep it going, then great. But I've got a garden out there. Like I said, I mean, after this interview, you know, I'll go for a shower and then it's going to be out there and I'm going to be sticking in all these different varieties of whites that I bought that I shouldn't have done. <laughs> My mum asked a question about your garden, actually. She said, um, uh, do you have a pond in your garden with fish? I've got one, two, three ponds. Yeah. And one of them did have fish in it. It had about, uh, I think it had about 17 until a big heron came down <laughs> and, like, and decimated it. Absolute massive. I've got a boomerang. Right, because you're not allowed to kill errands, right? Because they're protected by whom I don't know. But like, but I was solely tempted to take this boomerang out until I realised that my neighbour's Mercedes was probably in the line of fire if I missed the errand. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, yeah, I've got a pond. But I mean, I'm, that's one of the things we're going to be doing in the winter is restoring one of the big ponds. I love it, but I love gardens. I mean. When my dad died, you know, I went out there and I lost myself. Seven months, I've disappeared in that garden. Yeah. I didn't even know the year had gone, you know. And it, but it was like, it's just growing things. And it, it gives you it gives you a perspective on life that's very different. You know, just growing food. It's just, it's, it's, it's incredible. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, I've got I've got six cauliflowers that I bought as plugs. I cheated. I bought them. I'm not trying to serve them for seed. They sit outside my mum's window because my mum loves cauliflowers. Right, and every day she can wake up, she looks at the window, she sees how the cauliflowers are growing, and she knows that one day she's going to get them. Right, and that's kind of, but that's where it's at, and you know, that's I love it, and creating this garden around our house. I mean, it's not a massive house; it's a, it's a converted studio. This was a studio, right, in in 1991. It was just a big box, but it's now home, right, yeah. and it's it's perfect for us. We don't need anything else. That's what I'm saying. I'm. Mean, I, I, you know, I don't want a flat in, in down in Notting Hill or wherever. Uh, you know, I do, this is our home, and we can keep ourselves alive. And I can make music, and I can write words and write books. And you know, it would be you know, I'd love to write a screenplay, but I, do, I don't want to engage with the outside too much. You know, here is fine. It's, you know, I don't want to engage with the entertainment industry. You know, yeah. because therein lies madness. Oh. It's great to see you so happy, mate. It really is. And mm. um, is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't? Don't know. How long have you been doing journalism? I've been doing a podcast since um, it's probably uh, just under two years. I'm a big fan of podcasts and it's, like I've been a huge music fan since I was buying Pink Floyd albums from Boots House when I was about eight years old. I could you know? see your collection. Um, yeah. Marillion sort of, um, I got big into prog sort of around 10, 11. I got... Um, this isn't the best thing to say. I got brave out the library when I was 11 years old and it like changed my life. Mm. It really made a big impact on me. And yeah, so I had this idea to try and do a podcast and um, Mike and the mechanics were playing down the road. And I thought, if I can get Mike Rutherford on my podcast, I'm going to know that I can make this happen. And um, I couldn't get an in-person with him, but I managed to get a phone interview with him. And then Colin Blunstone from The Zombies happened the same, the same week. And uh, it suddenly just started happening. Yeah, since then I've had I've had Steve Howe from Yes, I've had Lloyd Cole, I've had uh, all four surviving members of the Zombies. Um, I've had sort of newer bands I, I like. I've had Steve Hogarth, your replacement. He's <laughs> um, still not. I feel sorry for him because he's still known as a. It's still. What well, the Gardener's World thing wound me up because um, it was still very much like oh, fish from Marillion. It's like you yeah. made you made four albums with him in the eighties and. As like a younger fan, you know, I um, I heard some really younger, but Brave was my real entrance point, and I've grown up with Hogarth. You know, that mm. that's the version I've been going to see all these years, and so I see I see Marillion very differently to a, a lot of older people. I think you know, and and it feels like only now they're sort of getting you know recognition for what they are now. You know, with sort of the Albert Hall thing, and it'd probably be easier for them now. I'm retired. Yeah. I've just been blagging it, and it's been amazing what I've been able to pull off from my little flat in Westcliff, you know? So, yeah, cool. Um, so it's, it's just a labour. I make no money from it. It's just been a labour of love. But I've had I've had Steve Hackett, Tony Banks, and Mike Rutherford all on the show, um, yeah. and I'm a huge Genesis fan. And so, uh, yeah, it's been mad. I think, you know, I think that's what people forget. It's like, you know, to... to, to and, you know, they they forget about you know creativity. It's like you know, it's like creativity should always you should always make money off it. You don't have to, you know. Yeah. If you can get like enjoyment, you know, out of doing it, you know, the money stuff's just it's just a cherry, you know. It's like you know, but it's it's, it's, it's you know, I think especially during these times, I mean, you know, to be able to create and that that could be from like being creative in the garden or being creative with words or being creative with music or whatever you know i mean getting that 
soul satisfaction, I think, is more important than anything else. But I mean, but, but I mean, I think that's one of the problems with the music business. It's just so, it's just all money. It's, it's become, I think Robin Bolt summed it up for me. He said, you know, the problem with the music business, it used to be capital M, small b, and now it's small m, capital B, yeah. you know. I'm simply a man of our time Confused and bewildered I seem to live without reason or rhyme Thank you very much for delivering the album. There's your payment for delivering the album, which we paid off the recording, right? Yeah. And then I would have been sitting till next year waiting on the album, and then you would have to wait till the album came out before they decided whether the album was good enough to warrant them taking you on for another album and extending your contract. And I would have been sitting here now on the phone to my A&R guy going, is there any chance I could get a, 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 another advance you know, just to tide me over? Yeah. You know, I don't have that. Yeah. You know, it's us. It's mail order through fishmusic.scot. I don't have to bother about getting albums to retail. I don't have to bother about service and distribution you know companies you know it's like it's just us you know and every album that comes through here either my wife or i have touched at one point you know what i mean and it's like you know and it, that, that's what we do and we don't sell hundreds of thousands of albums but we don't need to sell hundreds of thousands of albums it's a markup is some you, you're earning so much more per cd as well because you're not yeah. going for a retail you're, you're making the 10 the 10 pounds you're just paying for you know, the production cost of the CD and, you know, obviously the making of the, the album. But five, five, five years, five years yeah. of writing. Yeah, you I know, know. it must be it, tough. This is what but... people forget about, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it was five years of putting that together through thick and thin. Yeah. And there's periods where, you know, we couldn't work, I mean, for, for various reasons. Yeah. And it's, uh, so, but yeah, but I mean, but doing it this way, you know, it's a lot smaller, but it works. And, you know, and as I said, I don't have to, you know, be part of the big entertainment industry and, you know, and it, it, it just it feels more honest yeah. in a way, you know what I mean. Well, this has been a this has been a kick for me because, as I said, I got into Marillion when I was about eleven, and around about a time we um, I taped live at Lorelei off UK Gold. Um, I must have been eleven or twelve, and it was um, live at Lorelei, and it was edited, so it only gets darker like after commercial breaks and stuff. Yeah. And so um, that was the first sort of um, you know fish thing I had um, at home, and um, I've got such a um, such a long personal history going back to you know my yeah. pre-teen years and stuff you know so um this has but been it, a this kick, is another know? thing that's happened people don't have the same relationship <clears throat> with bands like, like like you know when i was a kid it was like you know there wasn't the internet obviously and and you know if, if there was a you know back in those days it was like you know just like genesis i was a, a big genesis fan but genesis brought an album out then there'd be an interview and then there'd be a live review and apart from that, there'd be nothing. You might get a little snippet about an information there, like Steve Hackett's solo project or whatever, but that was it. So the, there was a huge air of mystery that certain bands, but you stayed with bands, you know, you kind of, they became part of your DNA in a way, you know, your personal memories that are attached to these albums and, and periods of your life. People don't have that now because it's tracks, you know, it's, it's so easy to put Spotify on and put on Shuffle. And, you know, it's great to discover other bands, but, I mean, you know, Spotify in itself is kind of, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword, you know? Do you know, I think it is happening, though, but maybe you're just a bit detached from it, because I'd say there are bands like 
you know, the National and, you know, Radiohead and bands like that that do inspire attachment, you know, and like, I think I'm in this sweet spot. I'm still in my late, I'm in my late 30s, I'm 37. I still love music and I still get attached to newer bands, but maybe I'm, except maybe I'm a bit exceptional. (laughs) I don't know, but I think it still is there, but it's just more... Yeah, I mean, I, I look at my, my daughter, Sarah, even she's brought up her music. I can't even remember the last time she bought a CD. She listens to everything on Spotify and YouTube. Right. And this, she never kind of raves about any bands. I, I don't remember her yeah. ever raving, you know, about, oh, this band's like, you know, oh, she'll go, this album's great, or like, this track's great. But I mean, you know, I've never known her, you know, well, I've got to get a ticket for this gig or whatever, you know. And, and, yeah. You know, and, and I look at my stepson, who's, who's 17, and, you know, there, there's a couple of, He's not really kind of attached to bands. He likes music, yeah. but it's all it's a it's an entire palette of music rather than being focused in you know specific genres and things like that. And the mystery's gone as well because you can find out what the gig was and what the setlist was in Milan and what the singers wearing in, in Stockholm that night and whatever. It's completely different, you know. And and I think I, I think that becomes you know there's too much of it. You know, there's, there's too much information now, you know, yeah. and I think it's, it, but it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how the music business evolves through this pandemic and, 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 and you know, the whole life thing is, is going to completely change. I mean, there's so many factors that are going to come into play. You know, I mean, if Roger Waters rejoined Pink Floyd and was playing the Harrington Connick tune tomorrow night, I wouldn't be there, you know, yeah. and it's, um, and, you know, you've got to be aware of that. And I'm also aware of, you know, my fan base, I mean, the core fan base, you know, is, is 45 to 55 years old. You know, that's that's where the, the core is. Yeah. You know, that's a core that, you know, for them to go out to gigs is, is, is something special. You know, they don't just need to go to gigs. You know, they, they apply themselves to go to gigs. Yeah. And, you know, you're dealing with all that. You know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm picking the right moment to do what I'm doing. You know, then, you know, I've made the decisions, you know, at the right time. You know, and I think and Veltschmerz is definitely an album for its time. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I'm supposed to be seeing Genesis in April, and I'm not even sure that's going to happen. You know, I mean, no way. I think I worked out. I saw six gigs before lockdown this year. You know, so I'm I'm a regu- I'm a big you know a big live music fan, but um, like you say, I wouldn't want to go to something. To, it'd have to be pretty exceptional to get me in a room tomorrow. Yeah, um, this is it. In all honesty, I, I can't see my next tour happening until 2022, and I think it's going to be the fall of 2022, and that will be the farewell tour. Yeah. You know? And that's what I'm, I'm open. I mean, you know, I've already told my agent, I said, you know, I can't go out and play reduced capacity gigs. I can't go out and 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 be in a situation where I'm on a tour bus and suddenly Gdansk, Krakow and Warsaw go down and I'm suddenly I'm sitting there on a bus for a week. It's too a stressful, man, yeah. Can't do it. Don't you want it. Do yeah. it. And, you know, and, and the other thing is I'm not 30 years old. I'm, you know, I am shielded. That sepsis thing last year, I mean, I was left with... There's definitely a bit of post-traumatic stress syndrome in there, you know, because I remember what it was like being in a hospital full of tubes, you know, yeah. and it's I don't want to go there again. You know, it's not paranoia, but I'm I'm extremely guarded, and I'm you know, and I don't want to go out on a tour where I'm, I'm risking myself because if I'm risking myself, you know, I am I am the husband to a wife, I am a stepfather and I'm a father, and then all the rest of it, and you know, and I don't want to be out there running dangerous lines, you know. Yeah. Listen, man, thank you so much for doing this. It's, yes, thank you. It's been, yeah. it's been brilliant, man. And I'll, um, I'll drop you an email, right? Okay, mate. And um, yeah. say hi to Simone for me and have a nice time in your garden, right? Okay, right. I've done, yeah. If you send me, I'll, I'll send photographs to the pond when it's done up for your mum. <laughs> <laughs>
Please do, yeah. All right, man. Take care, buddy. Take care. Cheers, eh? See you, man. Bye. Wow, what a ride that was. I hope you enjoyed it. What a brilliant and engaging guest Fish is. I really hope his future creative projects work out for him. What did you take away from the interview? Let me know. I'm on Twitter at Signals Podcast and on Instagram at Sending Signals Podcast. Now, enjoy my interview with Brian Prothero. Brian is an actor and musician. He started out in the London folk scene in the 1960s, but he put out several albums for Chrysalis in the mid-70s and had a minor hit with a really unusual song, Pinball, which later would provide the inspiration for Noel Gallagher's Riverman. Brian's acting career has seen him appear in TV shows like Lovejoy, Midsummer Murders, North and South, Doctors, Spooks and Holby City, as well as various BBC Shakespeare productions. He was credited as the co-pilot in Superman the Movie, which of course I ask him about. Brian has continued to record and self-release music, and he recently collected some of his recordings together for an album called Desert Road, which you'll get to hear a couple of clips from during our conversation. Enjoy. How are you, mate? I'm very well indeed. Very lucky to be able to do to work from home in these, uh, these ridiculous circumstances. Yeah, I'm all right. I've, I've been doing mainly music. Um, because all the the acting world is shut down, or the theatre world anyway. Yeah. Um, so I've been giving that a rest, doing the occasional voiceover, but uh, doing mainly uh, getting this album together um, over the last uh, two or three months. What sort of period of time were the songs written over? Because I, as I understand it, you've been releasing sort of odd songs, sort of self-released over the past few years. Is that is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Well, about well, probably over twenty years now. I, I, I generally work with a mate of mine called Julian Lippmann, who plays with Steel Ice Band, um, but we've been mates since the early, early 80s, and he's a producer, multi-instrumentalist. And, you know, every now and then, when I haven't got an acting job, I start getting itchy musical fingers. So uh, we, we get together and, and produce a, a, a single, and I, I put it out. I put it online, out online myself. And I th- eventually thought, well... I, I've probably got enough for an album now. Why don't I put that together? So there's there's a there's one brand new song. There's a remix of a, ni- a song I wrote in the '90s. Uh, there's a, a live track, and there's two demos. One of which is 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 a demo I found re- recently. I, I recently really discovered, which is, which is a, a a very early demo, probably the first demo of the of the song Pinball um, that I hit with in in the '70s. So I and but the rest are songs that that I've been releasing self-releasing over the last uh, 15 20 years. So I gather you don't tend to think in terms of albums as a general no. nowadays. No. No. No, I don't. I suppose I mean there is a sort of feeling with this album um of all the songs of a sort of sweet melancholy feel about all of them. I mean they're not all they're not that uh, I'm not talking about the musical feel, but they're just main. Some of them have a musical melancholy about them, but but even when they don't, they have a sort of something melancholy in the lyrics. So I suppose that's that's just coincidence. Just I suppose that's just getting older. I don't know. Yeah. Um, All the stars is a lovely track. I don't know if that's what you consider to be the new one. Um, it is. That's the new one. Yeah. 
tell me about it was it was it composed primarily on piano or on guitar because it's sort of both it, both both in there it was composed on on piano right um in fact i started that song nearly 20 years ago wow <laughs> which, is, which is utterly ridiculous yeah um but i was uh i was away on tour and i was missing my wife and th- that was the sort of seed of the of the song um drive me home uh, down that long desert road. And it sort of, um, I came to a sort of full stop with it. Uh, I, I worked on it for a bit and then you kept coming back to it over the years and couldn't quite finish it. And I then, th- oh, I, I think the last time I, I worked on it was at the beginning of this year. And I finally got an idea for the final verse. <laughs> Not the most, the, the, the quickest um, uh, songwriter in the world. But that, I mean, that is that is a rarity. Usually, the, the songs I write take well, well, a couple of months, but not not twenty years. <laughs> yeah, how much of the creative process in terms of music is takes place in in your head? Are you thinking and planning songs in your head for a while, or do you need to have an instrument and like a pad and paper in front of you in order to to sort of process like your creativity? It depends. Usually what happens is I sit at the piano and just and just play random series of chords and a, a chord sequence may just, oh, that's nice. And I just turn the iPhone recorder on and record that little bit of, of, of music, come back to it a day later and think, oh, yeah, oh, I, I would have forgotten about that. And then start to sing rubbish just any any lyrics at all just words that i like images that occur to me stream of consciousness and then when i'm when i've got to that stage when i'm out walking uh, or, or or driving in the car some other things connected with the uh, the lyrics that I've already got might it might occur to me and I'll come back and um, of course the trouble is if you're not actually sitting down with a with a notepad sometimes you, you forget things so it's a, a kind of random chaotic process but I write I'm more of a sort of stream of consciousness um, lyric writer um, so I'm more concerned with juxtaposition of images and uh, and f- and feel, um, yeah. So it, but it it does vary. Sometimes, sometimes. I mean, there's a song on the on the album called "Sad Song," 
and I got that very quickly because it was a, it was <laughs> it was something that happened to me when I was in my late teens. One of my first girlfriends, and she we had we had a, a very we, we started a relationship, and then a couple of weeks later, she she went off and off with her old partner, um, and and suddenly announced to me she was getting married the following week. So that was but <laughs> that was that was very much and i wanted to write a, a a sad song which wasn't didn't have a sad feel to the it had had a had a quite a nice sweet jolly feel to the to the musical side of it yeah. so that was that was that came very quickly uh, what inspired cold harbor cold harbor i um i live near nearish to brixton yeah. And um, I used to drive along. There's a there's a road quite near Brixton called Cold Harbour Lane, and I every time I looked at the sign, I thought Cold Harbour. What a great name for a song. So I don't know why, but I started with that the the riff, which is um, a ninth well, for musicians. It's the it's a sort of ninth without um, without a third or without a seventh. It's a very kind of sparse, um, eerie sort of chord. And I'd, that really that literally was, I can't say what it was, I really can't say what it was about, but it was, um, it was the failure, of, I suppose, of intimacy. Um, but it wasn't anything specific. Uh, again, it was, it was a sort of sad, melancholic stream of consciousness, um, which which sort of took off, and that's that's all I can say, really. It's evocative, and I wondered what influences kind of sonically fed into it, because it it reminds me a little bit of um, I don't know if you know the Blue Nile um, Scottish band uh, from the eighties. No. There's, there's a little bit of no. a Blue Nile um, in there, and 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 I wondered right. kind of sonically where where you were coming from. Sting. Okay. I would say uh, uh, Every Breath You Take, um, I, I absolutely loved the, the, the concept of the song and, and, the, and the chords, the chord sequence of that. It's quite a simple, it's, it's a deceptively simple chord sequence. And it goes from the, the major to the relative minor. And, and, that's, that's, and that sort of started me off. Um, so, I, yeah, Sting. I was hugely influenced, I would say, by the police. Stuart Copeland came on the podcast, actually. Um, Did he? Uh, early in the year, yeah, which was yeah. which was fantastic. He was great, yeah. But again, I noticed you're talking more about the sort of chord sequence as opposed to the sonic yeah. the sonic quality. Is, it, is, there, is there kind of... Do you have a home studio? Are you working from a home studio? Well, we all have a home studio now, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> I was, Are you recording at home? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I do. I used to do much more at home than I do now. But now the, the friend that I mentioned, Julian Littman, has got a proper home studio in his basement. Yeah. So what generally happens is I use a MacBook Pro and a Logic X Pro and start fiddling. I just keep it simple. Take it to Julian. He says, "What about this?" He does a bass line. He, I mean, he's extraordinary because he does. He's a great drummer, bass player, guitarist, uh, mandolin player. <laughs> you name it. He, he can't blow anything. He says, but everything else he can get a tune out of. Yeah. So, 
that's really that's how it's that's how it all starts but um yeah i used to do a lot more i used to have a, a, a small bank of of keyboards a sampler and a and a, and a synth and uh, various other outboard but i mean you don't need any of that anymore if, if you've got logic or if you've got another daw it's uh, it's incredible what you can do i mean c- considering when i first started i obviously started in a studio with um not quite eight track but six 16 track and it was so much more expensive and complicated doing it on re- on real tape i mean it sounded great but uh, now you can do anything if you've got the imagination and the technical know-how obviously yeah it's interesting that you've been sort of pulled back to music so i get the impression that your time with chrysalis wasn't the happiest <laughs> in your life is it wasn't, it wasn't. It was some of the happiest times I've had in my life have been recording in the studio with great session musicians and with a, a with Del Newman, uh, who was the producer, and a terrific uh, engineer called Richard Dodd, who is now very successful, has worked with George Harrison and all great he lives in america now but but he he was a he's a very creative engineer and 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 so working with him i sort of we we both kind of pushed the envelope um as as regards um recording was concerned so in the studio very happy outside the studio talking to the suits not so happy (laughs) and uh, i wasn't really also i was being distracted well as they would say by um by my acting career i mean in in the 70s when i uh, in 1974 when when pinball was a hit i was in um i was starring in a in a rock musical in leicester called leave into heaven that eventually went into the west end two 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 years later uh, in between that i was doing a couple of little tellies here and there um did the did leave into heaven after the west end in 1978 on the on the telly so I was being uh, I was being split between the two things, but my heart, I suppose, was I was more well. Let's say I was more comfortable uh, in the theatre world than I was in uh, in the music business. Uh, but being in the studio was 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 fantastic. Yeah, I think Del Newman passed away this year, didn't he? He did. Yeah. Yes, he did. He was. Yeah, it's very sad. He was. He was. Um, he was great to work for. I, I met him. Initially, I was in a musical in when I was in rep in Exeter, and he he MD'd a production of Guys and Dolls, and we got on really well. And it was a short time later when I got a, an offer of a contract with Chrysalis, and the, we had discussions about producers, and the first name I thought of was Dell. And so uh, and so we started off, and he 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 produced those three albums in the seventies, which was great. Yeah, it's interesting though when, like in hindsight, to a degree, Chrysalis, as a lot of labels were doing it, it's amazing how much, um, I guess, freedom to a point, but the fact that they were willing to fund like three albums, you know, they were willing to let artists grow and develop as opposed to pinning everything on the first album being successful. And I feel that that's changed (laughs) um, a lot now, you know. Well, market forces always dominate, don't they? I mean, and 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 generally speaking, 
Well, I don't know what it's. It, oh, it's all, It's so different now than it was in the seventies. It's it's a completely different giant business now. It's. I mean, you can still, you can still put things out on your own. You can still do your own thing, but if you want a really successful career, you have to sort of toe the line in a way and be a sort of business person as well. And I think that's always been the case. And I, I was. I, that's never what I was. What I was. I understand you wrote Pinball for a play that you were in at the time. No. Oh, you didn't? No, is no. That, is that a misunderstanding? Okay, right. Yeah, no, that is a misunderstanding. Well, no, I, what happened was, funnily enough, I... No, I was in a, I was in a, a play. I was touring in a play called Death on Demand, which was a kind of... Um, <laughs> it was a sort of thriller, Bodies on the Lawn, sub-Agatha Christie yeah. thing. And I was playing... I was playing a character called Johnny Tomorrow, who was a pop star. Brilliant. And in the yeah, and the um, <laughs> hilarious, I know. And the the um, the writer of the of the play, the author, uh, he had a lyric for a song that he wanted the character to sing, and he 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 said, "I yeah, you play, do you write you write music." Um, so I said, occasionally, yeah. And so he, he showed me this lyric and I went away and wrote a tune to it. And he went nuts about this tune. And we, I did a little demo, which I thought it was lost forever, but I have just recently discovered it and I've had it digitized. So um, I might, I'm not going to put it out because it's terrible, but it's a sort of, you'd say it was a, a sort of romantic Matt Monroe kind of ballad. Um, and I, I ended up uh, singing it in the show. Um, so that was that. But Pinball was literally uh, a diary entry yeah. from, I would say, probably, 90, uh, yeah, 73, 72, 73, 73, probably. When I was living in a flat in Covent Garden, I, yeah, I just split up with a girlfriend. I had no, I had no job. I was living in the, it was a three, a, a narrow three-story house owned by a producer friend of mine who lived on the top floor. An act, no, actor friend of mine lived on the basement. I, I was in the middle, in the, in the first floor flat. And it was really a reflection of, you know, the, the, what was happening at that time. Having split up with, the, with this girl, um, fleas in the bedroom, flies in the bathroom, the cat that, that the bread, you know, it's, it, uh, and the Marilyn Monroe reference came. I, I used to get up on Sunday mornings and walk over to a, a news agent in Soho and get a paper. And I remember one morning seeing in a, a, a bookshop window, um, a book about Marilyn Monroe. So, you know, that sort of got, um, got fed into the song as well. So it was, it was really, Stream of consciousness diary entry of the time. Yeah, I'm. Um, I was surprised hearing the demo 
on um, Desert Road of how um, how fleshed out the demo was because the, the, oh, yeah. the production is is quite mad on on the album version and I wondered how much of that sort of came in the studio but you've done a lot of work already on it no that absolutely no no I mean I had apart from the apart from the drums really drums bass and and the sax solo I had the arrangement I used to have a a, a two track tape recorder and in those days you could you could bounce from one track to the other and add add things on each bounce yeah the the quality would would diminish with each each bounce, obviously, but uh, at least you could do some sort of version of the multi-track recording, like that, and it ended up in mono. Yeah. Um, it was obviously famously now cited as an influence on Noel Gallagher's Riverman. And I, yeah. I wondered if you like Riverman. Uh yeah, I can see the I can see the resemblance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like Noel very much. I like his sense of humour. Um yeah, he's great. And I, I a friend of mine told me about that and sent me uh, an audio of an of an interview with him when he when he talked about being in LA and with Morrissey and being in a being in a bar, and Morrissey had this CD of of his favorite tracks, and insisted that um, <laughs> that it was listened to. <laughs> um, so I, I I learned the whole story, and uh, that was it was great. No, I I, no, I like I, I like his stuff. Did you tour those albums in the seventies? Were you were you on tour? No, I did a couple of I did a couple of one off concerts. I did one at Stratford East in the eighties. In the seventies, I did one. I was in rep in Sheffield for a while. And I did one. I did one there. I did one at the Mermaid Theatre. That was the sort of main concert at the time, um, which was financed by the record by Chrysalis. Um, I also did a a gig at the one a Chrysalis dinner, which was terrifying. But um, I, I never actually toured, uh, much as they would have liked me to. I was too busy doing doing theatre. I know you're probably bored of talking about it, but can you indulge me with some Superman stories, please? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I can, because uh, I got the part in Superman because I fit the costume. The yeah. guy who was originally playing the co-pilot uh, couldn't do it for some reason. And they had a costume and they and I was the right size for the costume. So I got the part and we were we went to Pinewood. Uh, and we were it was it was nice because we were actually weather cover, as they say. So we were hanging around for about a week uh, watching bits of Superman being filmed. Um, so that was cool. And it's nice to see it again, although my voice was eventually dubbed. That's not my voice. Really? Uh, no, no, it's not my voice. It's uh, hi, this is Air Force One. <laughs> kind of <laughs> Mickey Mouse dubbing um, that they did afterwards because there was so much. There was a whole that the mock-up of the cockpit uh, was on uh, in the studio it was on gimbals and there were the, the, the crew were kind of were, were rocking it backwards and forwards um, to, to recreate <laughs> the storm and it made a hell of a noise so they couldn't actually hear my dialogue <laughs> oh that's i mean it's not like you don't have a great voice either you know <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't I just couldn't hear it and it's uh, it's so tragic that your character doesn't even have a name you know the imdb no, no, database is just like Co-pilot. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, 
Um, something I like to ask actors is whether it's hard to feel like you're being creative sometimes or making a role your own because you're serving a director's vision and you're reading words that someone else wrote. Is is it a challenge to to, to feel to take ownership of a role sometimes? Yeah, and you do that by reading the script over and over again, uh, doing the research if it's required. Generally, there's some sort of research, even if it's not a real character you're playing. Um, and you, you, you find, you, you just naturally find things that you connect with, with your own personality. In my 20s, I was playing a lot of um, acting roles, which were beyond my years. I mean, up to, up to age 50. Um, I, I was I was known as a character actor, although I was initially employed as a juve because I was a good a good looking young man. But it turned out that what I was best at was 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 character parts. So I would do a huge variety of, car, uh, of parts, some of which um, I couldn't connect with personally. But um, you just you you're kind of forced into some sort of performance through, I don't know, impersonation, listening to people who are like the character that you're playing. So it's a combination of things. The be- I mean, the, the best experience is when you find, a well, I, when I was 26, I played Hamlet. And that's an extraordinary part to play because he is sort of every man and every actor who plays him can fi- effortlessly find something about themselves in that part. So it's it's very it's a very easy part to get to grips with. Yeah. It sort of drives you. I was going to um, ask about Shakespeare in general, and do do you recommend that any aspiring actor should do some Shakespeare? You know what what do you get from from doing Shakespeare? Yeah, but I've I've done a lot of Shakespeare. I've played uh, you know I've played parts a couple of times. I played I played Claudius twice. I played Macbeth twice. Um, I've played lots of uh, Shakespeare leads. Uh, you get a, th- a feeling the more you sort of, the, the more you learn about the, about the part you're doing in any Shakespeare play. It's like opening, a, it's like a sort of one of those Russian dolls or a sort of um, a treasure chest that you open and there's another trash, treasure chest inside it, another one inside that, another one inside that. And it, it just goes on forever. Um, he was an extraordinary genius who uh, sort of w- what he could reflect the human condition in the most extraordinary way and and in the most exciting way, the most intellectual way. All young actors should 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 try and have a if you get an opportunity, take it. I'll let you go in a couple of minutes. I just wanted to ask also about you've done some work with Big Finish, the um, audio yeah. drama company, and I yeah. I'm really fascinated by their work and this this idea that they can bring back television shows because often yeah. the act the actors are still alive and could provide their voices, and yeah. you don't need the sets and pro- and it's it's like an ingenious <laughs> concept yeah. they've developed, and I wondered what 
and I know you've only done a couple, but I wonder what the process is like. Are you, are you there with all the cast? Is it? Are you sitting yeah, around yeah. the table? Is it done quite quickly? Do they take a long time over it? I'm just curious. It is done quickly. Often you don't even have a, a read through. Right. You just you, you 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 all meet in a studio. You go into your little separate booths, and uh, you maybe have uh, you're called according to the the um, the scenes that you're in. You might do, they might be quite disjointed. So you have to have done your homework, you have to read the script beforehand. And I've done two sort of doc, Doctor Who um, audio things. Um, I think it's two and one other, and maybe a couple of other ones. Yeah, but, but it's it's nice. It's good fun. So it's because it's quick and, you know, a bunch of actors. It's, 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 it's a nice, it's a nice day. It's usually done in a day, yeah. each thing. So it's. Um, so it's which fun. doctors were you? Were you with? Were you with one? Uh, it was. Was it Paul McGann or was it one of the others? No, not Paul McGann. Oh, uh, names. I'm so old. I forget names. <laughs> um, name some others. So you have got Tom Baker's done a lot of them. Sylvester. Tom Baker. You had Tom yeah, Baker. I did one, wow. Did one with Tom. Yes. <laughs> and another one. So you got. Um, oh, who's the who's the actor who was in Peter the Davidson? thing that was on te- on yeah Peter Davison. Did yeah. one with him as well. Right. Yeah. Can you? What, what was Tom Baker like? Was it? Was it uh, an experience? To great fun. Yeah. Great. Great stories. Yeah. Raconteur. Yeah. Yes, it was good fun. What are you doing? Have you been working on more music this year, or have you got any acting parts lined up? What What's going on, sort of now? No acting. No acting parts. I'm just about to start two new first dates uh, voiceovers um, series. Oh, of course, yeah. They're adding to the normal first dates and to first dates hotel. They're, now they decided to do first dates teens, which uh, te- teenagers, which which they've already filmed and which I start next week. I'm starting the, the new normal series on Friday. Where do you go for that? In my front room. Really? On the yeah, I do it on the microphone. I'm speaking to you on now. Fantastic. Thanks so much for doing this, mate. It's been fun. All right, it's a great pleasure, Gary. Thanks. And um, check out the Blue Nile. Blue Nile, yeah, I will. Yeah, Blue yeah. Nile. I'm yeah, making the, a note. Their 80s stuff is lovely. They made two albums in the 80s, one called Hats and one called A Walk Across the Rooftops. And they're Great. both they're both lovely. I will. I'll do just that. Look after yourself. Nice to speak to you. And you. See you, Brian. Bye-bye. 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 And that's our show. You can find out more about our guests at brianprothero.co.uk and fishmusic.scot. Thanks as always to our guests whose opinions are their own. Thanks this episode to Ben Pester and William Love. Be seeing you.